finish up the, the, the last five or six verses here in chapter 11, and it's, it's also the kind of the end of a section too. So if you're, if you're remembering what was going on in the beginning of chapter 11, you can follow along with the notes and the outline. There's really a lot going on in these few verses, and so much that we won't try to get through everything, and I may, uh, may only make a statement or two about something that we could spend an entire uh, message covering and discussing but uh, hopefully you, it will at least give you something to, to chew on and, and to think about, and then we'll come, uh, maybe come back to that another time. There comes a, a point in a person's life, in a sinner's life, when he or she realizes that there's a problem. Ever since the beginning, when the first man and the first woman sinned, people have entered the world with a fallen and sinful nature and at hostility with God. Romans 5 calls us the enemies of God. And because of our sinful nature and because of, of what that does to us, the fact of the matter is we're fine with it. We're pretty much okay with that. I sin, so what? That's our attitude. Without Christ, without the 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 conviction that the Holy Spirit brings without the, the desire to please God, the Bible says we're just fine doing our own thing. We don't care what God wants. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. We want to live as we please. Make our own rules. But then, some begin to realize their sinful nature. They begin to understand that they are at enmity with God. And they see this problem. They recognize, as Romans 6 says, that the wages of sin is death. And all of the, the many passages that tell us about the, the problem with sin and what that is going to mean for us one day uh, without uh, it being properly handled. And so these people that come to this realization, they want to fix it. They want to do something about their sin. They want to avoid the punishment. And in maybe even find a way to reunite with God, to be reconciled with God, satisfy His wrath and His judgment. They just want to fix the problem. Adam and Eve, they made skin, or they made uh, aprons of leaves. They tried to fix it on their own because they knew there was a problem. They tried to fix it. Now, people do that on a variety of ways. They try to address their sin problem. Some will try to fix it by coming to church. They, they, they kind of, salve their conscience that way. I hope that's not why you're here. Some will try to do that for by doing good deeds, turning over a new leaf, donating to charity, volunteering at a mission, something like that. Others will go a different direction. They'll try to deal with that problem, that realization of their sin by going further into sin. They, they try to drown that out, drown the noise of maybe of the Holy Spirit's uh, conviction by filling their life with more noise. Others, of course, will follow Christ's instruction and find salvation. But these are the people that we're speaking of this, this morning in this passage. These people who have the realization of a problem. And this passage speaks of them and to them today. These people recognize that they have a sinful condition. They want to do something about it. They, and, and, and regardless of how they're going to, what they're going to do to respond, they, they want to 
uh, address it. Now, just because you recognize the problem of your sin doesn't guarantee that everything's going to be okay now. Uh, doesn't guarantee that you respond properly. Last week, we, or not last week, but two weeks ago in our last passage, we talked about a generation of people that do not respond to Jesus and respond to the message. And this week, this morning, it's important that we understand that just responding to your sin doesn't mean that you did it rightly. You did it the right way. There, there is, there is a right way and a wrong way in many wrong ways. And if the previous passage spoke of an unresponsive generation, then this passage speaks to those who will respond. And Jesus provides for us, and Matthew as he records this, the one and only response to God that matters. And as we continue this passage and at the end and, and finish this section here of chapter 11, and, and it moves uh, very distinctly on to something else in the next passage, although it's connected. As we move on to these things, uh, we find that Jesus has shifted his attention now from the condemned generation, verses 16 to 24, to a, a different group of people. And as I said, uh, the, the verses 16 to 24 are the condemned generation. Verses 25 through 30 now are speaking of an accepted people. A condemned people, then an accepted people. And it might be very, it might be helpful to just briefly uh, go back to the book of Luke and try to help you to understand a little bit of the context that Matthew does not include in this. And you won't go back to it, but if I'll just tell you, it's in Luke chapter 10, if you'd like to read through it uh, sometime and get some uh, context there. But there, uh, in just a portion of it, Jesus had sent out a group of 72 disciples to go out on a mission trip. He sent them out two by two, and they went to all the different places uh, where he would go. And in Luke 10 and about verse 20, they come back to Jesus and they're reporting of all the wonderful things that they had seen God do in these surrounding towns and villages. And Jesus famously says to them, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then right away it moves into the prayer that we read about in Matthew 11, 25. So as we, as we com, uh, consider this passage together, I want you to recognize three very distinct parts, and you'll see them in the outline as three different points in the outline, uh, three distinct parts of Jesus' words. We see praise, we see words of revelation, and then we see words of invitation. So let's look at that together. Matthew 11 uh, and verse 25 begins with praise, and Jesus is praising the Father for what He is doing. In verse 25, Matthew writes that Jesus answered and said, or it says He declared. Uh, and, and actually, if you read Luke, it says that He is rejoicing in saying these words. So it's not just saying a statement. He's actually rejoicing by saying these things. And we see, and I want you to see three reasons before we read the verse so that you'll, you'll see them as we go. There are three reasons why Jesus gives thanks to the Father. Number one, because the Father is hiding something. He thanks the Father too because He is revealing something. And then three, He thanks the Father because He is pleased with something. So look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. So first, Jesus thanks the Father for hiding these things. And I, and I have, and I, and I'll continue to refer to them as these things because that's exactly how Jesus said. But it's helpful for us to try to think about what those things might be. But he says that, uh, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. 
It's a kind of an odd statement to make. Uh, first of all, what are those things and why is God hiding them from people? It helps us to understand, though, that the wise and the understanding are not actually wise and understanding, but people who consider themselves to be wise and understanding. They are the people of this generation, back in verse number 16. They're those who uh, Jesus described as being unresponsive and unrepentant to Christ's message. And Jesus says that God has hidden these things from them. These things are something that God has, uh, that the unrepentant and unresponsive people didn't get or didn't understand, yet another group of people did. Because then Jesus continues in verse 25 with the second reason for His thanks, for His praise. He says that though the Father has hidden some things from the wise and understanding, He has revealed them to little children. And you can probably figure out that He's not specifically talking about actual children, but about His disciples. And He's making a contrast between the group of people that, that, that these things have been hidden from, the wise and the understanding, and now the little children. In Luke, he's specifically referring to the 72 that uh, that they get it, that their names are written in heaven, and he turns immediately and he says, thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you revealed them to these little children. These these unassuming, uh, unimportant, maybe non-intellectual, and yet they get it. And all the wise and the understanding, think of the Pharisees and the leaders of the religious system of that day, they didn't get it. They knew everything, and yet they knew and understood nothing. It's about people here who are honest about who they really are. They're the opposite of those people who deem themselves wise and understanding. They're humble, like little children. And they've been blessed with revelation from the Father about who Jesus is. Is. They get it. Their eyes have been opened to see Jesus not just as a miracle worker, not just as a crowd pleaser, but as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And then notice the third reason in verse 26. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now it's very important that that verse right there is, is really uh, uh, vital to understanding the rest of what's, what's going on there. The reason that God hid these things from the wise and the understanding and the reason why God revealed them to little children is simply because it pleases Him. It pleased the Father. It was His will. It is good in His sight. And for this reason, Jesus praises the Father. He rejoices and gives thanks that the Father has done what pleases Him for exercising His sovereign will. In other words, Jesus is pleased because God did what pleased Him. Very different than what we get pleased by today. I am pleased when you do things that please me. You are pleased when people do things that please you. Jesus is pleased when the Father does what pleases Him. In other words, Jesus rejoiced in what pleased God the Father. And these words explain to us why our greatest efforts to illuminate the truth of God don't change the hearts of a person. I can be eloquent, I can be witty, I can be uh, uh, very logical and rational and move right through uh, the wisdom of God and explain it to them, some, some elementary truth of God, and yet they don't get it. Because the truth about these things must be revealed by the Father. Because the Father conceals and reveals 
as it pleases Him. We who believe and have seen these things, these things have been revealed to us, can simply thank God for knowing everything, for controlling everything, and for being good in everything. We know God knows. And we know God is good. And that God is doing what pleases Him and that what pleases God is good and just and right. Now the second section in our passage is is just verse 27. In this verse, Jesus speaks to the people about His relationship with the Father in heaven. We see it as revelation. And this relationship of revelation is described in three ways. Look in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That first phrase there, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. This first declaration reveals this unified relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is sovereign. He has a divine will. He conceals and reveals as it pleases Him. And Jesus is the Son who facilitates that will. Or as Carson puts it, He is the exclusive agent of God's revelation. Jesus is given His authority by the Father to accomplish His will. And Jesus continues to add with the next section, with the next statement that nobody knows the Son except the Father. Think about that statement for a moment. Nobody knows the Son, really knows the Son, except for the Father. In his commentary, John Calvin pointed out that this is an answer to the logical question, as one would read through this, would ask the question, why must the Son be revealed by the Father? Because the only, only the Father really knows the Son. Jesus was openly presented to Israel, but many couldn't see Him. That's why John wrote, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that they did not understand the wisdom of God, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 So, it is the Father who reveals these things to people because only He truly knows the Son. And then Jesus adds the third statement there, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So get the, get the, 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 the picture of, of how Jesus is laying out these, these statements one after another to build on them. First, all things are given uh, to me by my Father. And nobody knows the Father except the, I'm sorry, nobody knows the Son except the Father. And nobody knows the Father except the Son. And then as if to parentheses the rest of it, and anybody that the Son chooses to reveal the Father. So the Son knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son. And the only other people who really know the Father are those that the Son reveals Him to. And the only people that know the Son are the ones, verse 25 and 26, that the Father reveals to. The Son knows the Father, not because it has been revealed to Him, but because He is the image of God the Father. And the Son exercises the authority that is given to Him by the Father, choosing the people that He will reveal the Father to. So just as the Father chooses those to whom He will reveal the Son, 
The Son chooses those to whom He will reveal the Father. If you're confused, it's okay. Because it's not a, it's a, it's not a very simple subject to, to try to wrap your mind around. John Calvin wrote it this way. It is very, I find it very helpful. First, it is the gift of the Father that the Son is known. Because by His Spirit, He opens the eyes of our mind to discern the glory of Christ, which otherwise would have been hidden from us. Secondly, the Father is revealed to us by the Son because He is the lively image of Him so that it is in vain to seek for Him elsewhere. So this, we have this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And it involves the choice to hide the wisdom of God and the identity and mission of the Messiah from the wise and understanding, while at the same time revealing those same things to little children. We have this, uh, this, this, this revelation, this concealment and revelation, and it's all done at the Father's choosing. It's all done at the Father's will. And so then we begin into verse 28. And, and these words from verses 28 to 30 are only found in Matthew, but they connect so beautifully to verses 25 through 27 and really to the whole of what Matthew is, is trying to bring out to us. So look at these, uh, look at these words there. We call this the invitation based on the divine revelation from the Father about the Son to little children and the authority given to the Son to reveal the Father. Jesus extends this invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see this, 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 this final section is Jesus speaking to the people about their relationship to him. So he just spoke about his relationship to the father and the Father's relationship with the Son. And Jesus here, what we have, and I didn't really bring it out much, but this is Jesus very very specifically identifying Himself as the Son of the Father, as the Son of God. This is Jesus, and He's saying, uh, no one knows the Father but Me. And if you want to know the Father, I will choose to reveal Him to you. And no one knows the Son but the Father. And the Father will reveal those things to you. Uh, and he will conceal these things from other people. But now, in verses 28 and down, he talks about not his relationship with the Father anymore, but because of his relationship with the Father, there is a unique relationship that, that man can have with Jesus. He, he says in, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So he extends that invitation now in Matthew 11 and promises rest to all who come to him. This is an invitation of rest. And based on the previous verses, this is an invitation to know the Father. Remember, because nobody knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. These are people that he's speaking to that desire to know the the Father. He's speaking, I think, primarily to, to Jewish people here who have a history of worshiping the God of heaven, the same God that we would we, we worship this morning. 
But yet they, 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 they were missing some things because they were missing the one standing in front of them speaking to them, missing the fact that, that Jesus, the Son of God, the, the, the visible image of He who is invisible, is standing before them and they didn't get that. And that's what He's trying to get them to understand here. But they were, they're trying to worship God. They, they felt that they were worshiping God truly. John Broadus wrote that no one would come to learn from Jesus who did not desire saving knowledge of God or who was satisfied with the knowledge already possessed. He's not speaking to people who are, who are pagan and don't really care about anything spiritual. He's not speaking to apathetic people about religion. He's speaking to people, I think, who truly desire to know God. And to be, and, and to, to understand the truths of his word. I think these are, these are people that had the, 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 the book of the law and they, and they studied these things and they, they would memorize large portions of these, of these words and, and of the truth here. They would, they would try to live their lives by them and yet they're missing something. And notice how Jesus describes them. He calls them little children in verse 25, we already saw, and that describes their relationship for their need of God. They're humble, not like the supposed wise and understanding of the day, but like unassuming, simple children. But then in verse 28, he calls them people who labor and are heavy laden. This is describing the condition that they're in because of their realization. Because they realize they have a great need, this is their current state. They labor and they are heavy laden. They labor means they've wearied themselves. Through exertion. They've toiled. They've worked. They're exhausted. And no closer to reaching God. Broadus continues with his, with his, with his explanation here. He says that the most natural tendency with anyone who has become painfully conscious of sin is to seek God's favor by his own doings and sufferings. And again, I brought that out a minute ago, but think back to the Garden of Eden. What did Adam and Eve do when they realized they had sinned? They tried to fix it themselves. They didn't go to God and say, God, we need you to fix this for us. They said, where, where's the, 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 the biggest tree with the biggest leaves so we can make aprons? Think about uh, in, in current religions today. Think about all the religions that you are familiar with today. The primary basis of every religion except for Christianity is work and labor to clean up your life, to do good deeds, to stop doing bad things, to give to the church, to go to the church, to help little old ladies across the street, and it goes on and on and on. And it's doing the things that we should be doing. It's all about what you do. It's trying to appease God by punishing yourself, by disciplining yourself, by changing yourself. And Jesus is telling us exactly how that works out for people. It's wearisome. It's exhausting. They labor and toil and they're just plain tired. They struggle to know God. They labor to do so. And these people have recognized their sin and their need to be reconciled to God. They struggle in their own efforts and all it gets them is weariness. But Jesus also calls them heavy laden, meaning that, that they've been burdened down and overloaded. 
Now, there's a lot of words in this passage. You could look through them uh, later on and see that Jesus paints this, this picture of, of, a, of a beast of burden, an animal that is serving its master. Maybe a, a donkey that's hitched up or, or an ox or, or a horse or something that, that would, he uses the, the words of yoke and he, and he talks about heavy laden and, 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 and he, and he talks about the rest. And by, uh, by calling them heavy laden, Jesus is recognizing that in their current situation, things aren't going well. They, they're weighed down. They, they recognize the problem and so they labor. And the heavy laden, they're overwhelmed. They're overburdened. And I think referring to the religious system of the day that demanded so much more of people than God actually intended. If you'll look later in Acts 15.10, you'll read about Peter's perception of this system when uh, the Jews had uh, decided that the Gentile believers needed to uh, come through Judaism to come to Christ, if they wanted to be Christians, if they wanted to be brought into the family of God, they had to become like the Jews. And Peter stood up and said this to them in Acts 15.10, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He says, you're putting a yoke on these people that none of us were ever able to, to bear. Why are you making them carry it? But he uses this terminology of a yoke. Again, in Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus said that the religious leaders of the day tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. This is, and it wasn't the, it wasn't that they were teaching some other truth. They were taking the truth of God. They were taking the law. They were taking the, the words of God, misinterpreting them, adding to them, adding their traditions, adding their understanding, their interpretations, all of those things, and putting them on the people. And Jesus actually goes on and say that those same leaders who overburden the people won't even lift a finger themselves to help. I'll let you do all the work. Don't expect me to do it. But what, what I want you to understand here is that this is the yoke. This is the opposite. This is the other option, the alternative to the yoke that Jesus is going to talk about. He says, th- th- this yoke, no one's been able to bear it. No one is able to carry it. It's heavy to bear. It wears you down. And Jesus says, come to me. As an instead of, therefore, because of everything I've explained to you so far, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And because of the authority given to Jesus the Son by God the Father, He now invites these little children who are weary and heavy laden to come to Him and find rest for their souls. It's, it's thought by, by, by some that this is a common message that Jesus would, would preach and deliver, not just at one time in, in history, but as He would go through, this would be His message. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice that by coming to Jesus, He means to take His yoke. Taking the yoke was a figurative term that was used for submitting to a specific teacher. By following a particular man in his teachings in this culture, it was called taking on his yoke and serving him. And this is exactly what Jesus means in this passage. He's saying, be my disciple. 
follow and learn from me. Take my yoke. When it says there, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he is describing the exact same thing in two different ways. One figuratively and one literally. By taking the yoke, I am learning from him. And that word learn there is the same word that we use for disciple. Saying, be my disciple. Why? Because by coming to Jesus, by taking his yoke, by learning from him, by being a disciple, you find rest. Rest for the soul. Because by coming to Jesus, who is the Son, and by learning from him, you find and know the Father. That Jesus is not offering the yoke of the law. Neither is he offering the freedom to do whatever you want to do. He's not saying, you come to me, I'll take the yoke off, and you get to go and do whatever you want. You're no longer under law, you're under grace. Because he's saying, take my yoke. There's still a yoke involved, which means there's still a master involved. Someone's got to hold those reins if you're getting in the yoke. But this new master, is meek, lowly. He's not proud and overbearing as, as others. When you come to Him, you find that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Now, if you remember, way back in the day, it was about a year ago, that we were in Matthew chapter 5. Read the Sermon on the Mount again sometime and think about how much easier Jesus' words are. Because that's not usually the word that comes to mind when we read, you've heard... But I say, you have heard here, but I say here, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't sound like it's getting easier by following Jesus, but by coming to Jesus, by submitting to Him and taking His yoke, by learning from Him, there's a promise that no other master can fulfill. They might offer it, but they cannot fulfill it. That is rest. Though there is a yoke, there is rest. Though there is a master, he is meek and lowly. Though there is a burden, it is easy and light. In just the last few minutes that we have, I want to try to help us tie this in, understand what this rest thing is. Because it's not a rest like sit back, kick your feet up, and rest. I did some traveling uh, the last few days and uh, what I wanted most of all was just rest. I wanted to sleep. I wanted to put my feet up and get, uh, I, I took a picture of my, of my uh, shoes because I'm at the point, ladies and gentlemen, when I have sacrificed style for comfort. And I was wearing boots that just did not feel good. And I knew I was in an airport and I was going to be on an airplane and traveling. And I brought, I pulled my Birkenstocks out of my backpack and I put them on and I had my socks on and I looked like I'm exactly from the Northwest because that's how we do it out there. But nobody else does that because it's not cool. But I said, you know, I don't care. My feet need a break. I need rest. The rest that Jesus is talking about is not, Hey, let me do, let me do everything. You just sit back and, and do nothing. Because he's talking about a yoke. There is work there. But at the same time, there is a rest. There is a, an idea of rest that we need to understand. So there are two passages, and I'm not, I'm not going to try to look through them or anything, but I want to give them to you and maybe assign it as homework. The first one is in Numbers 14. In a nutshell, Numbers 14 is when Israel refused to obey God and enter the promised land. They, they saw the giants. They saw the, the overwhelming odds. Uh, and they said, no. 
We're, we're not going. They're too big. We are grasshoppers in their sight. And they were afraid of the people. They disobeyed God's instruction. And because of their unbelief and disobedience, God says, fine, if you won't go, then you have your wish. You will not go. You will not enter the land. And in Psalm 95, we find kind of like a recap of that whole passage in Numbers. And Psalm 95, 11 says that God swore in His wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now in Numbers and even Deuteronomy, it's brought up again. He says, you're not going to enter the land. But in Psalm 95, there it says that you won't enter my rest. Because the promised land symbolized rest for Israel. One And one commentary suggests that it's represented an end to the wandering that characterized their life after the Exodus. They spent 40 years just wandering, going nowhere. When they got into the land, it was supposed to give them rest. Now you have a place, you have a, a, a fixed location, you can build houses and you can, and you can have plant crops and you can have rest. Because of their unbelief, they did not get it. Their, un, their disobedience prevented them from experiencing rest. And even as we read, if you study through it, those who did enter the land really didn't find the rest that God had intended for them. Now the other Old Testament passage that speaks about rest particularly rest for the soul, is Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, talks about that rest can be found by walking in old paths. It says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So when Jesus invites the weary to come to Him and find rest, He's telling them what Jeremiah was telling them. Look for the old paths. Follow the old paths. He's inviting them to come and walk in the good way and there find rest for the soul. Jesus was promising the rest that Israel had long ago forfeited through unbelief and disobedience. And again, the rest that Jeremiah urges them in uh, years later to take to find by walking on the old paths. And Jesus stands in Matthew 11 calling out to a people who are far from God, who know they are far from God, in their hearts, and who struggle through futile human efforts to come to God, to know Him. The the, the Jews weren't pagans. They worshiped God. They tried to please God, and yet they could not. Some of them thought they could. They're called wise and understanding. And for them, the knowledge of God, the, the wisdom of God, the mission and identity of the Messiah was hidden. To them, to some, to a few, he realized we've never been able to bear this yoke. We try, we fail. Jesus calls out to those people, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the promise of rest in Jesus Christ remains today. We are offered that same rest. One day, a literal rest. We will be with God in heaven and no more struggling with sin and no more, no more toiling as, 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 as we do uh, down here. And, and that, that, is, that awaits one day. But the question is, what about now? Have you found rest? Is there a rest awaiting for you? Have you become like a little child, humbly 
Honestly, have you admitted your need to know and to learn from Jesus? Are you a disciple? Are you in the yoke of Christ? Following Him? Doing it His way? Because I said at the beginning that, the, that, that you know, many, all of us are sin, sinners, and then some realize, I need to do something about this. But then there, we all go different directions and say, you know what? In my pride, yes, I want to be, I want to be submitted to, or I want to be pleasing to God, but I'm not, but God better submit to my terms. A lot of people like that. I want God to be happy with me. But God needs to change and start liking the way that I live life. God, I want to come to you, but on my terms. And God says, that doesn't work. But then there are some who say, like little children, they're weary. They've tried. They've failed. They've toiled and labored and they come to Jesus and there they find rest. The promise of rest is obtained simply by coming to Jesus, learning from Him, following Him. Question to ask, am I following Jesus? Have I taken His yoke upon me? Which means, is He the Lord? Is He the master that I obey. If you could turn around in your yoke and who's holding the reins? Who is driving you? For many of us, I think we would, many of us who claim to be Christians, we were to somehow turn around figuratively and see who's holding the reins, we find that we've got them in our hands. I'm doing what I want to do. Some, it's Someone else. But only those who are in the yoke of Christ find rest. And then as believers, we pray that God will illuminate hearts, reveal to them the same truths that He revealed to us. That God would reveal His Son to people and that Jesus would reveal the Father to them. That they would submit to the yoke of Christ and their find rest. Paul says, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews says, let us strive to enter to that rest. Let's pray.